Hey everybody, it is episode 74 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is live in person with me. Hello, podcast world. We are continuing our series this week on what is quality. In episode 73, we started with part one, kind of answering the question, what is a quality workout? And then beginning to go into the first two categories of workouts, economy, you have a two max style workouts. This episode, we're going to go into additional categories of workouts and again, talk about where those fit in your program, examples of those types of workouts and tips on doing them. So we'll continue to step through this series with this episode. Of course, as always, we've got some intro topics and there is a lot to cover here, Steve. We'll see where we go with some of these, but the first we alluded to in our last episode was the Asbel Kiprop EPO positive that came up last week. We didn't really get any new information, but it's a big enough news story out there that we've got to talk about it. It's a crazy news story, and Chris. Yeah, there's some soap opera-like things <laughs> at play with this one. But to give this is where conspiracy theory can come in. Exactly. <laughs> to give the listeners context, Asbel Asbel Kibrop, probably the greatest miler of the last decade, who has Gold medal at the 2008 Olympics, three world championship gold medals in 2011, 2013, and 2015. Tested positive for EPO. We haven't actually gotten the official word on that, but it was leaked through the media, and he confirmed himself that he has an EPO positive. And so this is obviously sad news for the running world in one sense, although I kind of consider it good news because the more we catch the drug cheats, the better. But there's a saga here, Steve, that we've got to talk about because Asbel Kiprop came out with his, what seemed to be his own statement written by him. I read it to you. Yeah. That Steve, we were driving. Steve read to me as we were driving <laughs> from Dallas back to Austin. And it's, it's crazy <laughs> with this list, laundry list of reasons why this EPO positive test isn't real and why he's innocent. So, Steve, give us a little rundown on, on Kiprop's, quote, reasons, or you might call them excuses, for this EPO-positive test. So he gets tested out of season. That was his first point. Like, I wouldn't really be doing my drugs if I wasn't... I, would, I wasn't doing the drugs I normally would do if I was, as if I was in season, so this couldn't have benefited me. Which immediately, Chris, you and I at that moment, that's where he starts off his, his statement. And we're like, okay, no, that's exactly when you do red the EPO. Flag. That's red flag. Red flag. red flag number one. You don't do them in season. You do it out of season. So he either is dumb enough or has no idea. That's why we think he wrote his own press release and maybe had helped editing it. But it was definitely didn't make logical sense. The second thing he says basically is that he was another, in, in complete violation of water rules, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency. He was called in advance and told he would be getting tested the next morning, which is absolutely a no-no. And WADA eventually said, or whatever it is, who is it? The uh, group uh, accountability, no, uh, integrity agency or something. I don't know who they are. Maybe they're a, a subset of WADA. I don't know exactly because WADA yeah. hasn't officially stated this. Anyway, basically, somebody called him and said, hey, you're going to get tested, which is complete, utter bullshit should not be happening number two they come into the house and they say by the way we need to get paid 
it was they go to his house in Nairobi or wherever he is and hey we need to get paid and literally he walks down into his he makes a big show of this in his thing it's like I went into my bedroom after I peed in the cup after I peed in the cup and had my two samples out on the kitchen table for people for them to see quote unquote doctor I went into my living room I went to the bedroom so I could get my my phone so I could make them a payment a, a PayPal or Venmo or whatever it was he was some other proprietary payment system but he paid them and on the way back, and then, and then everything was fine, but then I found out I was tested positive. So therefore, I must they must have doctored my sample while I was in paying my testers, which is just literally left, right, left of completely making a mockery of the of the drug testing testing protocols, making a mockery of his intelligence and his ability to understand what's going on. Because Chris, really, when you think about this. It just shows that he doesn't know what's right and what's wrong because this is the way that things operate in Kenya. And basically, the end of the story is this. This dude doped for sure, and he's getting thrown under the bus, probably because his career is near on the way out. And Kenya has got to do something to get themselves in a position where they're starting to look like they do some form of testing. So they throw this guy under the bus. And in the meantime, they take mo- somebody's taking money from somebody to make it all happen. It's just an absolute travesty and it definitely makes us you know you've been saying this for a long time chris any kenyan should be looked at with suspicion this just completely confirms your argument that you've been making that there are no doping protocols in play in the state in the in the nation of kenya of any consequence whatsoever and it may even be better in ethiopia than it is in kenya because at least the ethiopians don't say shit whereas the kenyans say we're all clean you know yeah and it doesn't mean they're all doing it but what it does mean is that the system isn't catching people. It's the Wild West, not only from an out-of-competition testing standpoint, because if it is happening, which in many cases it's not, then clearly they're getting notified (laughs) that it's coming. So that's a problem. So you have that issue. There's no system in place to catch the the cheats. And then there's also no oversight and willingness to actually catch the cheats because you know Athletics Kenya is is corrupt. You know the agents that are overseeing these athletes are corrupt and have multiple doping positive athletes in their purview. And so as I look at it, the only athletes that have access to a compete at international events and world level events and world championship and Olympic level events are the ones that are in with the corrupt leaders, (laughs) right? Because the agents are the ones that have access to the big meets and the big races. Athletics Kenya has access to teams, world championship and Olympic teams, and we know they're manipulating the system to kind of get their favorites into position. So if you're a Kenyan athlete, the only way you can compete at the world level is if you're blessed by the corrupt people of the world that are are there to make money off of you. So why wouldn't they put their best doped athletes forward and lead the, leave the clean ones at home? So it's ridiculous. And it's not to say that every single athlete's doing it. I think there are some athletes in Kenya that are training in their own groups that are doing it the right way. David Rudisha is one that I would look to in the 800. Potentially Kipchoge, you know, the jury's out for me on and Kwame Moore who trains in the same crew. Yeah. So yeah. there are it is possible, but unless somebody cracks down just like Russia has been cracked down on, 
on these agents and these officials at Athletics Kenya who are theoretically monitoring and a part of the anti-doping regime there, then it's going to continue to happen and it's going to continue to be a problem on the world stage for athletes that are doing it the right way. And the fact that WADA and other anti-doping officials can't ban agents or hasn't chosen to ban agents in the past is a problem. To me, this is like, you know, busting Kiprop for this is like busting a drug user versus the drug dealer. Exactly right. He is not the one who has access to EPO necessarily, or he certainly didn't have access at the beginning. Maybe he does now, but Mm -hmm. at the beginning, he's not the one that introduced EPO into his training, told him how to use it, told him how to periodize it, told him how to plan it around his international racing schedule so that if he does win a meet, he doesn't get busted. Chris, he doesn't know any of that information, obviously, by his statement. So that means that he's been set up by his agent to do things because he doesn't even understand what he should or shouldn't be doing. And his, his agent, Frederico Rosa, now has at least four athletes that we know of that have been recently busted. Jemima Sumgong, Olympic marathoner, gold medalist. Rita Jeptu won Boston when Chilane raced in 2014 and Meb won. Casorio, there's, there's a list of them. So multiple athletes in his purview. And every time it happens, he's like, I didn't know about it. They're doing it on their own. And he cuts them off. And so t- this is exactly what's going to happen with Kip Rob. He's going to get left hung out to dry. Frederico is going to act like he did it on his own and then move on to the rest, to the next up and coming Kenyan athlete that he can manipulate and you know, get on EPO and get into major, major events. And so it's, it's just ridiculous. And it's going to take the IAAF and the World Anti-Doping Administration having a, a willingness to actually go after agents and officials in major country-based athletic federations in order to crack down on this stuff. It needs to happen for the sake of our sport. Some people will say, well, you know, testing, those that say testing just doesn't help because you can always beat the test, which is true at some level. But at the same time, what we've seen as evidence in places like Kenya and Russia and other places is that there hasn't been a willingness to actually catch people with testing. So you can't tell me whether testing's working or not because it's not actually being administered in a way to catch people. This guy got a call and said, hey, guess what? We're showing up. And so he could have done whatever he needed to do to avoid having EPO in his urine. But as it stands, he got caught. And I'm happy he got caught. He's always had suspicions in my mind around him because of his agent association with Rosa and because of some of the ups and downs in his performances where he'd show up in a meet and finish dead last. In my mind, doing that so he can avoid getting tested because the winners often get tested and get his appearance fee at the same time. And so <clears throat> good riddance, Asbel Kiprop. I don't believe one word of your statement. I mean, there may be truth in it. What do you think about the tra- his, his trauma? His He's trauma. been traumatized. <laughs> no his sympathy. Is, I was, I've been traumatized by this. No sympathy. I mean, I do at some <laughs> level have sympathy because he is being used yes. by the powers that be, and that's unfortunate. But at this point, he's a willing participant in that charade. So no sympathy. And 
you know, one thing I also I want to make one other point I want to make here for the listeners who throw their hands up and say, I can't watch track and field because everybody's dirty. First of all, I would point you to the National Football League and Major League Baseball. If you are fans of those sports, then shut up. Then, yeah, then you can't really talk because those are sports where doping is rampant and yet they're not actually being caught because the NFL and the Major League Baseball doesn't actually want to catch people. And if they do catch them, they give them a slap on the wrist. Slap on the wrist punishment. Mark Ingram from the New Orleans Saints got busted this week, had a four-game suspension. <laughs> so of the $4 million he was supposed to make this year, he's losing a million bucks, but he still gets $3 million bucks because you know he was on drugs. So the risk-reward system in that world is broken as a result people are abusing the system and so if you're watching those sports then you can't talk but secondly as i've come as a a cynic generally as i've come to to kind of realize and appreciate about this doping fight in track and field is that you have to be aware of it dig into it understand the telltale signs of cheaters so that you can then choose who to be a fan of And yeah, we're not the judge and jury, and we're not the ones that are going to know definitively who's cheating and who's not, but we do get to choose where we invest our time and energy as fans. And so for me now, because I've seen enough of this and I'm educated about the problem, I can point to the athletes that I think are suspect, and I can point to the athletes that I think are doing it the right way, and I can cheer for the ones that I think are doing it the right way with a clear conscience and with even more pride when I see them do well. I think of Emma Coburn at Worlds. I think of Courtney Frerichs at Worlds last year. I think of Jenny Simpson breaking the two-mile record that we talked about last week. I think of Meb. I think of Shalane. I think of Molly, Desi. There's so many athletes that you can cheer for and root for and believe that they're doing it the right way. And it makes their victories even sweeter and, and more fun. So for me, as I become more educated on the doping issue, it's actually helped me reinvigorate my love of the sport by being able to pick and choose the athletes that I really want to invest time in. Yep. Okay. Tell us how you really feel, though. <laughs> this <laughs> is a awesome. topic I'm pra- he is, passionate he about. He is, Here very much so. The other point related to this that we've got to mention is the Magnolia race this past weekend in Waco, Texas because it's related to this doping issue, had $88,000 in prize money without drug testing. We had a runner there, Rachel Baptista, who trains with Team Rogue here with Steve, who ran her half marathon debut in 112 smoking time. And that is an Olympic trials qualifier if she chooses to compete for the U.S. But it's also a <laughs> Venezuelan national record, so I have a strong so, feeling she's not going to represent go. the United States. So, But she finished third, still got prize money but had at least one athlete ahead of her that I would put in the suspect category that wasn't going to be tested that likely you know could be one of those suspicious athletes and that's that's one interesting underbelly of the doping stuff that not a lot of people know about is that there's this group of athletes that go around the country picking smaller races with prize money that don't have doping protocols in place doping testing and they cherry pick these races to to win prize money and take it away from clean athletes and it happened in a big way in magnolia this weekend you had at least two prior convicted dopers win prize money 
one on the men's side, one on the women's side in Waco this weekend. And I know there's a lot of people that are like, back off the race. You know, it was for a good cause. Chip Gaines from Fixer Upper ran yeah. a 525 marathon wearing a, a tool, tool belt. Which is really cool, <laughs> which is by the amazing. way. We I, love that. I love that. <laughs> I love what they were doing. They raised $250,000 for cancer research supporting Gabe Grunwald and her cause. Who coached him. Which yep. is awesome. Love all of that. But it is important that for all races that there are some basic standards in place because it's unfortunate these doping vultures go around and cherry pick prize money. But the result of that is you have small races that are experienced that know the game that have stopped offering prize money because they don't want to deal with all of that. Uh, mark my words. This event will not have prize money next year. <laughs> right. And so... It's unfortunate. Too much stress. It's unfortunate them. that that's happening, but there are dopers that are stealing money even at that level in a race that, from a national stage standpoint or a global stage standpoint, doesn't matter. Yeah, Betsy Sane is banging the doors, screaming and yelling that they're not doing doping. If that's happening, not that I'm saying Betsy Sane is <laughs> a doper. What I'm saying is that Betsy Sane, who ran 223, basically 222 high at uh, Paris and won, is. Looking around, and she chose, she didn't even know the race. She had no idea that the race was going to be there until up a couple of days before. And then she's like, I go down to visit my sister and get this money. Yeah. But even she, after the race, who had really no dog in the fight there and no need, because she made the big prizes. So the woman who got second place that everybody is questioning, she still was like, no, but we're all going to be under these, held under these, this scrutiny. We all need to be, we all need to know that what's happening out here is on the up and up. Because it affects all of us in the way that people look at us. You know what I mean? And, and for Betsy to say that, again, I'm not saying that Betsy's a cheater in any way, shape, or form. I don't believe she is. I'm just saying that it, didn't bene it, it doesn't benefit an elite athlete to come out about doping when they just made a whole bunch of money. And she did. So that's a good sign to me that, like, hey, what are we doing? Like, why? Uh, this is really ignorance. They didn't know what was going on. They had no idea. Yeah, I mean, it's not every, their fault. There was no, there was no I, I contacted, helped Rachel get into the race. They said everybody has to register. Rachel couldn't even register for the half marathon. She had to pay the entry fee for the full marathon and then move down to the half marathon at Packet Pickup. Um, I mean, they, they literally, it was kind of refreshing in a way because there was no politics. It was yeah. like, here it is, show up, pay your money, and go run the race. And you've got equal chance to anybody else to winning, the money, winning it. Yeah. It's like, that part's cool, but you're right. It's like, you wish that they would, uh, we don't need money in races if, we're going to have people who are completely illegal, who we know are dopers taking the money. That's yeah, not and good. you have somebody like Rachel who's works a full-time job, who's doing her best to train at 5.30 a.m. With, with the rest of us, who could be a Venezuelan Olympian if she wants to be. And, you know, that money should go to somebody like that who's actually fighting the good fight, working hard, doing it the right way. She did make money. She made twenty five hundred. Still made twenty five hundred yeah. bucks, but she could have made more. <laughs> right. Anyway, so that's another thing out there. But the whole point with all of this is being educated as a fan on this topic is really important because it allows you to differentiate the good from the bad, the questionable from from what you know seems like the real deal. So that's our rant on doping today, and to keep you updated there. Second topic: Galen Rupp. Dropped out of Boston several weeks ago with asthma and hypothermia. It wasn't a Rupp certified day on Marathon Monday. <laughs> and turned around, went to the Prague Marathon, 
got into a faster paced race and ran just over a three minute PR. 206 and 07, I think it was. 206 low. Yeah, 206 low. I don't remember the second, but I think it was 206.07 to win in Prague and finish now as the third fastest American to ever run that distance behind Ryan Hall and Khalid Kanuchi, who was a naturalized citizen who was born in Morocco. What's your take? We haven't really talked about this yet, Steve, so I'm curious. What's your take on Rupp's victory here? It's huge for him. I think it puts him in. I think he w- it's the piece that was missing from his resume. Um that he wasn't able to run fast. And we knew that he could run fast. He just chosen races that weren't optimal for that. And you and I both thought that maybe those choices were a little dodging or trying to set things up to be RUP certified. Um, and they did still set this thing up, I think, for him, and probably in very similar ways that our little conspiracy, RUP conspiracy circle is discussing. We have these ideas about whether... Nike conscripts some other athlete to do some work for him early or late to keep him watched and guided. And I'm not going to go into that whole part of this discussion because we haven't talked about it yet. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, this is a big feather in his cap and a necessary and needed result for him. One that puts him in a legitimacy category. When people, when you look at his name, he's not three quarters of the way down the elite athlete list. He's in the top. 10% of the people running the race. Um, He's not going to Doha anytime soon to run the super, super fast races. Um, I would love to see him in Berlin. Would love to see him in London. Would love to see him in Doha. We probably won't see that. But uh, this gives him legitimacy. And I think um, it was a really good bounce back race. In fact, it, it, it may be that Boston actually ended up helping him. And this was a really critical signature piece for his result. And, and his career. So, 206, the American record is... Dirty. Is Khalid Kanuch, technically. Mm-hmm. So, there's, <laughs> there's two American records. Ryan Hall, he's run 204 and change. The fastest he actually, marathoner He's ever, run yeah. the fastest U.S. time ever, although it's not official for record purposes because it was on the downhill point. And we know point. that's clean. Downhill point to point. <laughs> of course, that is Boston with the tailwind that year. We know that's clean, but it doesn't account in the official record books. Klee Kanuchi, Moroccan, who held the world record at the time in 205. That was a world record. That was a world record, 205, is the record holder now. So question now, Steve, is can Rupp beat that time? And if so, what time do you think he can get based on this result? All right, I'll answer that question, but I don't think that that question is as relevant and I'll tell you why so okay. I think he can run 204 high I think that's about maybe 204 and a half that's that's it that's what that's what he's he's able to do but I don't think that that'll ever be done or ever be tempted to be done he, he now has a legitimate time and I think the only thing that you're going to see is planning for 2020 where he's going to try to win an Olympic gold medal and I think that's the same thing you're going to be looking for from Jordan Hesse this will be this will be Alberto Zalazar's mic drop he won't, he's not coaching any other athletes, it doesn't seem like. It seems like he's moved all his other athletes to other 
to another coach that's in that system. And I think it's a mic drop for him, and he will put all his eggs in this basket for the 2020 Olympic Games to try to get gold medals out of both of them. And he has a legitimate chance. This time actually puts Galen back in the... We've never... Disc, I mean, he got third at the Olympic Games the, the last time, so you can't take him out of the equation. But now he's run fast enough to know that, that he's able to run the kinds of times that these other guys run. Um, and so I think that you're not going to see him go for... I think this will end up being his PR. That's what I think. I don't think he cares about the American record so much. Um, I don't think he, he seems to be chasing that. And I think his chase is going to be the one, the one big prize. The one ring to rule them all, right? Like the yeah. big, the big thing. That's what that's what I think. And so I don't mean to be disrespectful of your question. I just mean, yeah, yeah he could run that fast, but he did what he needed to do, I think. And this was a a big decision, probably one he made more than even Alberto, because I think Alberto doesn't care whether he'd run fast or not. Those things don't matter to him. He only wanted him to win a gold medal. Alberto's biggest concern is getting him set up for the next race, and maybe this is Galen saying, no, I can, no, I can run fast. Let's go do it. And then Alberto's like, yeah, well, that'll help us take the monkey off our back in other ways. Let's just go do it, right? But interestingly enough, Jordan didn't, and she didn't get on the starting line. So all of our bullshit throwing at her, maybe we need to take a step or two back in our anger and our frustration and everything else. She probably really is hurt because nobody's heard a word from her, not a peep. This was not a dodge. It was something else was really wrong. It looks, it, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. I agree with you on Rupp's potential. I think he wants the American record. I think Salazar wants the American record. So I could see them doing London next year or something like that to get up against Kipchoge and Farah and who knows if Bekele will still be in the game, etc. So I could see that happening and that's far enough out. You know, that gives you another it year, sure is. a year and change. So I could see that happening. And, but I don't and by the way, you got to give him credit for beating Ferris' time here. Yep. yep. The other thing I was impressed by was how this race went out. You know, this wasn't just a pace to fair where he kind of held with the pacers and then took off at the end. Lemma, who's run 204 and change at, at Dubai, took off. I mean, he, he didn't follow the pacers, or at least, at least the, the main group of pacers. There's a pacer that went with him. The race was set up to run 206. And. Lama went out in 205 pace and, and, and basically went off the front from the beginning, took a pacer with him, didn't follow the plan, got a little bit of a gap on Rupp, which Rupp had to chase down. He went through the 10K, Rupp did in, in 204 high pace, ended up making it through the half in, in 103 for pretty even splits for him, but had to kind of track down Lama. And then once he caught him, eventually he started making some moves to test him a little bit. They went off the front together and he had to really like race a little bit in this one and start earlier in that game than, than normal for him. So I was actually impressed with how he finished it. His last 2K was his fastest of the race. And so you had a strong finish, even though he was having to, to kind of play games in the middle with the pace and there were some surges there. So it was actually a really impressive race and not just a purely paced effort, which tells me that, you know, on a even faster course with a more consistent pacing and so forth. I think you're right. I think you can run in the 204s. Okay. One thing I just want to just throw it out there since you talked about this. Who is Cissé Lama's sponsor? Is it Nike? Yes. <laughs> so just, just now 
Now I don't. I just since we and I have this little conspiracy, theorists. we have a little side conspiracy thing going on with with uh, with Galen, where we wonder whether Nike is setting some things up to be optimal for him and throwing wrinkles in there and doing things that are designed to try to get him prepared for the race for the marathon. And these guys are his lackeys in some way, shape, or form. We have no proof of this. <laughs> we only have theories. It's a working theory. We're now published. We've now stated it outright on the podcast. At least I have. And I'm not sure if we're right. I just think it's an intriguing and interesting scenario to look at and to go back through and say, hey, is this happening? You know, it definitely happened. Nike definitely did this for, without a doubt for Mo Farah. So we kind of know that this has already been played out through the Nike protocols. Is this something that's 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 also a piece? Anyway, well, the you running, probably didn't want us to say that. Listen, but anyway. the running world needs more conspiracy theories, yeah, believe me. It does. That only helps get eyeballs on the sport but who knows but anyway i was overall impressed solid time a generally impressive and 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 an important step in his long-term running career in my opinion okay last thing before we go into our main topic and we'll be brief with this we wanted to mention an alex hutchinson article that came out on his sweat science blog on outside magazine i'll link it in the show notes but he talked about the a study that was basically a meta-analysis done looking at a bunch of different studies on, on running performance and recovery as it relates to different recovery protocols from massage to cryotherapy to electrostimulant to, to ice baths to all these sorts of protocols that would help you with to compression, all these sorts of protocols that would help you with recovery. And it talked about the relative benefits of those and which ones have any efficacy. I won't kind of give you the whole article. I'll link to it in the show notes. But the the basic conclusion was that massage and cold exposure seem to have the best and most verifiable recovery benefits. benefits. Although maybe not to the extent that uh, we might first think. So it's an article to check out. Definitely interesting. And we appreciate Alex always bringing the latest and greatest on science. And I think this article in particular, because it's a meta-analysis, it's not just one study, it's sort of a conglomeration of a bunch of studies, has a little more validity than some of the one-off information. We also wanted to share, as a part of mentioning that article, that Alex is going to be in the house at Rogue Running on June 28th, 6.30 p.m. We're super excited to be hosting him. He's going to do a talk, a Q&A, and a book signing here at Rogue in Austin. So if you're in the area, definitely come check that out. We do need you to RSVP and to actually get a quote unquote ticket. It's free to come, but we have a cap. We're already over a hundred registrants. We've got, we've kept it at 150 for space purposes. So if you want to get in on that, go to our Facebook page, click on events, and then you'll see it listed there. And then once you get into that Facebook event page, there'll be a, a link to an Eventbrite. RSVP mechanism so you can get signed up and make sure you're a part of that event. So shout out to Alex for the article. I'll link it in the show notes and do come see Alex in person. If you want to get your book signed or you have questions for him or just want to have an opportunity to meet him. It's going to be cool. I love that his title is the ultimate in parentheses evidence-based close parentheses guide to recovery. Wonder what he meant by that. But anyway, I didn't read the article yet. You just told me to, yeah. about it and I had to go to lunch and I haven't read it, but I'm really looking forward to it because I want to know. I love, that's what I loved about Endure, Chris. 
That's yeah. what I loved about Endure was it frustrated me in a lot of ways because I like the magic part, right? But I believe you can manifest things that don't necessarily, that science won't be able to back. And I, I see him as the furthest extreme of what I push against, but at least I know for a fact he's putting out there exactly what it says and he means it. And, and we need this kind of person that's taking all that scientific data and bringing it to us, the distance runners, to tell us what we might want to choose. And it'll be a great opportunity for people to come and listen to him. He'll, I'm sure he's going to come president, correct? He's been on this podcast twice. He's going to have some great information, and he's going to be ready for some really scintillating questions. So hopefully you guys will show up and, as, and make it as real. As one teaser for the article, I'm just going to read the last sentence because I think it's awesome. He says, but if you have a recovery routine that helps you feel better sooner after a big day <laughs> on the trails, maybe the best advice I can offer is the old saying, ask me no questions and I'll tell I you no lies. lies. Yeah, I totally believe that. I, I could see that. him saying that too. That's awesome. I love that. We love Alex, man. He's great people. Yes. And he's so. doing great things for the sport. And again, he's an outside magazine pushing our sport to, to, the, to the rock jockeys, to the CrossFit dudes, to the people out trail running, to the people doing hiking canoers and water sports people it's awesome and it, it again legitimizing our sport in ways that that are that that we can't get in other places thank you alex for for your yeah. fighting the good fight absolutely all right let's talk about quality again this is part two of our series on quality workouts you don't necessarily have to have to listen to part one episode 73 in order to get everything out of this episode but it'd probably be helpful if you want to stop and go back to listen to that first, but part two, we're going to talk about, continue our kind of walk through different categories of quality workouts, what the benefits are, where they fit, how to do them and so forth. And so we're going to cover three more categories. And again, just to clarify and remind you, these aren't necessarily perfectly curated categories. There's certainly a lot of overlap here. There's different ways you could define all of this stuff, but this is kind of how we think about it in general buckets. And so we hope it's helpful for you. We're going to talk about three more. We're talking about aerobic threshold work, which is the next category we'll talk about. We're going to talk about race specific training and, and workouts. And then we're going to finally talk about sort of a mixed category where there are certain workouts that might hit on a couple of different systems at one time where you might be working a few different things. And so we'll talk about what some mixed workouts that might hit on one or two or more of the other four categories at one time. So again, as a reminder, quality work, what we've defined that is, is hard running with a purpose. And so we're going to be talking more about different categories of hard running with a purpose today. The first category we're going to be talking about is threshold work. Steve, so I'm going to turn it to you a little definition on what are we doing when we're working on our threshold? Well, this is, can be extremely complicated and confusing in all of my, I'm not scientifically trained as a coach. I uh, had a degree in history and this is the one area where I always get a little uncomfortable having discussions because I don't know all the exact right terminology. Some people will call things an anaerobic threshold or an aerobic threshold or a lactate threshold or blood lactate accumulation. There's all these terms. And to me, they haven't really mattered in the final context of what people need to do to get ready for racing. And so those of you who are scientifically inclined, you can go out and pick up better 
Better Running for Distance Runners by Peter Coe and uh, David, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but there's places for you to find great information on the scientific basis for what's happening here. But Chris, what we're going to be doing is training our athletes to number one, deal with the buildup when they're, when they're oxygen, they can't get enough oxygen to their working muscles, shit gets run up in your body and you start slowing down and you start running off. You can't, you can't handle all the work at the paces that you need to work. And also, and this is where you and I have talked offline a little bit about there's that. And then the other side of it is, oh, but you're going to extend your body's ability to go at those paces for a start at longer and longer time. So I just lump these two terms together and it just happens to have some threshold, there's some number that pops up for where that is actually lactate accumulating. And now lactate has changed, used to be a bad thing. Now it's a fuel. So just for our listeners, I say all that stuff so you can just recognize what we're going to be talking about is tapping at a wide variety of paces, a very wide variety of paces. They're going to make it easier for you to run a half marathon and a marathon. And Chris, when we talk about threshold, we're really talking about anything from 10K pace, really all the way back to slower than MGP. And I don't really know exactly where I would put a hard line on where threshold would end. For some people, it might end at marathon goal pace. In fact, the science doesn't really know exactly what. They want to put it in these nice little tidy buckets of specific paces. But in our experience as coaches, we've seen our athletes improve from running all different paces along that continuum from their marathon pace all the way down to the 10K pace. And we don't really, we don't really discriminate so much. So the point being, it's anything slower than 10K pace and anything faster than, half, than, than marathon pace. And all of that is going to be valuable. And this is where we probably will have some folks disagree with us. But in my opinion, those aren't junk miles, anything happening in that zone. They're all helping you because of a wide different number of varieties and variables that we can talk about like heat and how long your long run is and other pieces. Yeah. Another way I might put it, if, if, if you're working on speed with VO2 max work, then when you're doing threshold work, you're working on endurance. Yes. That's a great way to say it. Your ability to sustain certain paces for longer, longer periods of time without shit hitting the fan. And so that's what we're talking about with this work. Another term I've used for it is aerobic strength which is, again, another way of saying you know, your ability to be aerobically strong or your ability to push back that line at which you start to get cattywampus. That's a great way to say it, Chris. So, so there you go. So now, now that we've kind of laid out the intention with threshold work, let's give an example workout for context. And then we can talk about how that might fit into a training program. How about two workouts, Chris? Okay. Awesome. So we'll do the first one we'll do is what we call it, what I call it rogue true tempo, right? Cause that, that's the other term that gets thrown into this whole box, right? Chris is threshold as tempo, right? Another yep. definition. So to me, it's just like, it's fucking get rid of all these goddamn definitions that just confuse people that don't really matter somewhere between your 10k somewhere between your mgp and let's run a continuum of paces so two of these threshold workouts that we use at rogue one is the true tempo which we use is absolutely dead on half marathon pace and the reason why i do that in my training protocols i do it very frequently um is because we know science has told us for a fact that that particular pace hits an energy system really sweet, a real sweet spot for that. Um, 
But we've also learned that you want to do it for 20 minutes or in my case, a lot of times what I'll do is a four mile, even though it's a little bit longer, it's a little bit more than 20 minutes. Most of my athletes are marathoners. So a lot of times I'll do a true tempo four miles at, right at their half marathon pace. And it's a hard workout, Chris. It's everybody thinks it's going to be easy because they think, oh, I'll be able to run my, but it's not ever easy. It always seems to be just a little bit more, a little bit difficult. And I do that workout primarily because I know for a fact that that energy system is one that will get a great bang for my buck. Another one that I do is what we call critical velocity. And I can't remember exactly the coach I stole this from, but I stole it from a coach. And we basically do, this is also another thing that we call a broken tempo sometimes where instead of, with the, instead of having our tempo be true or right at that half marathon pace, we'll, we'll run a little faster and break it into into smaller chunks so that we can kind of stretch ourselves and push the limits of what we can run from a threshold perspective. So we'll do what we call critical velocity repetitions. They're almost always 2K or one mile. And we'll do about 8,000 meters of it. So four times 2K, or we'll do five times a mile. And we'll do that at what they call 15, what it will call 15K pace. But for easy math, it's basically 10 seconds faster than your half marathon pace or 10 seconds slower than your marathon pace. And what we're doing there is really, Chris, what you were calling before aerobic threshold is pressing the outside limit of when you start to accumulate lactic acid and when you start to have a, a problem. And anybody that anybody that has done this workout before, they know super easy at the very beginning. And the last rep are, is always kind of like, wow, that was a lot harder than I expected it to be. But you didn't walk into it like you would six times a mile at 10K pace, which you know is going to wreck you by the end of it. So these are gentler workouts. They're easier workouts typically. Um, but they check a physiological box off. And then they also are challenging the athlete both physiologically and psychologically. And again, the thing about that critical velocity, Chris, the piece I missed was what's your recovery? We keep that at a minute to 90 seconds. And so that next repetition happens really quickly right after it. So it builds up. Um, you know, we've also done in this threshold area, we've done a workout where we'll do 20 minutes at a steady pace, which steady is really sits in that zone of, of threshold, but it's not specific in terms of how you, what particular pace per mile you run. It's as we say, easy, steady is as steady does, which means it is whatever it is comfortably hard at that day. And we'll do 20 minutes of, of, of a steady run and then we might go to the, we might hit the track and do a couple of repetitions of 400 meters or 800 meters. And then we'll go back out and do maybe another 20 minutes at threshold at that steady, steady pace. And then we're really just work, we've worked physiological systems, but we've also turned the legs over a little bit to the, get to the point where they're fatiguing and it makes it a little bit tougher to do that last section. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to do threshold workouts, and you'll see so many of them out there. And what I would argue for all our listeners is there's no such thing as a bad threshold workout. If you, you should do threshold workouts consistently, constantly, I would say in a month period of time, if you're not doing at least two threshold workouts in a month, then you're missing a huge bang for your buck in terms of getting yourself ready physiologically for racing. Tom Schwartz, by the way, is your critical velocity There we go. Thank you. that you stole that from. Yep. And it's not an easy workout. <laughs> it starts easy. Especially it the, always starts easy. the diabolical courses that you make us yes. do it on. But, <laughs> but nevertheless, it's still a threshold workout. But generally, threshold workouts are workouts where you're running 10K or slower paces 
with generally shorter recoveries because the idea is you're 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 working on the ability to recover quickly and get back on it which is obviously important when it comes to marathons and half marathons where you might crest a hill and have to work a little harder up that hill in the race and then need to get covered from that but but kind of do your recovery at race pace essentially and so you're learning to 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 stay strong regardless of the pace you're running in those longer distance races now a couple of other examples would be steady runs which is has been a staple in your training steve as well as progression runs could be a version of threshold work where you're starting at slower paces and then gradually working down over the course of a run so it's a continuous run those steady runs usually are pretty continuous and the progression runs are continuous anywhere from gosh 4 to 10 miles mm-hmm. sometimes in our in our workouts where you're running essentially comfortably hard paces for long periods of time and those and and for our listeners a progression pace workout if you want to know well where would i start i always like to tell people start at about 30 seconds slower than your marathon goal pace and then move down now if your run's only 6 miles then you might want to start at your marathon goal pace and come down because you're not going to have enough miles to get there. And you can break that up any way you want by 10 seconds per mile, getting faster 10 seconds per mile, getting faster 15 seconds per mile, getting faster only 5 seconds per mile. There's lots of ways to play a progression run. I like, as you know, Chris, I like to do my progression runs a lot more free form where my athletes are making decisions in the context of the run on how much faster they're getting. And I usually say, as long as you're faster than the last mile, then you're progressing, so that's okay. Um, and I, I, there's a lot of flex there because I know that in that space and I, but I will kind of put a hard limit very frequently and say no faster than your 10 K pace. And everybody looks at me like I'm crazy. There's no way we're going to get there. And then they get there and they go, Oh, we can't go any faster. Let's just hold that or finish where we're at. So progression, progressive pace runs are amazing runs. In fact, they're probably the perfect workout. If you had only one or two workouts to ever do They're they're, they're just amazing for you. Super hard to execute the right way though but effective. Now, another thing you reference, which I want to point out is that sometimes with threshold work, we might incorporate faster running for the purposes of generating fatigue so that you get more bang out of this threshold piece of the workout. So an example that we do here at Rogue is called a Julia workout where you're doing a 1-1 or a 2-1 or 2-2 fartlek on the front end, typically on a hilly course for a certain period of time really just to generate fatigue and get get uh you know get the monkey on your back take a break at a water stop and then do 4 miles tempo to steady effort to finish on a much flatter course always flatter designed course. to be yeah. flat if if possible yep and so it sort of forces you into this place of starting that threshold specific work tired and with fatigue so that you have to really work on being able to relax stay smooth and consistent during that tempo or steady work yes which to me is there's always a it's always a sign for me when i'm fit is you know being able to stay strong all the way through that kind of a workout because oftentimes if I'm early in a cycle doing something like that, 
then the the tempo portion might look pretty good for a couple miles. And then but it goes then it gets, quickly into gets, a shit show. It's really <laughs> ugly at the yeah, end. Exactly. But <laughs> if I'm on it, I'm pretty consistent. Can usually even progress a little bit at the end. So and when you're on it too, I notice that many of our athletes they're more aggressive on that fast that's the slow fast part because they know that they're going to be able to catch it later and they want to get themselves as close to the edge as they can and hold it and i love that part of the challenge the people who really get that workout understand that it's more about what happens in that four mile challenging part and they like to start it a little bit tired and the wonderful thing about the real threshold work is except for in a critical velocity kind of a workout more often than not you kind of start feeling better the longer you go in a weird way, as long as it's not too far. Yeah. You, you, you can get to the end of that workout feeling better than you felt three quarters of the way through the fast, hard, the, the hard, easy, hard, easy section. And so, um, especially because I make them on, my courses for the Hilly Julia are exceedingly <laughs> difficult. Yes. <laughs> There's yes. almost no determination between easy and hard because they're running uphill on the Straight easy uphill, and yeah. it's, it's all meant for another reason. What's another reason, but you know, we won't go into that right now. We'll talk about that a little bit. So, so those are examples now. And you mentioned doing this a couple of times a month, which, which we certainly do. But as it relates to a command performance, where does this kind of work typically fit in a periodization plan? Well, again, I would put it everywhere, but I do think that pretty much, I mean, I always have some threshold work. In fact, when I coached post-collegiate athletes, I had a great 800-meter miler from Wales, Chris Gole, who was a 400-meter runner. He, he earned a vest for the UK, for the Great Britain team, as a four by, on the 4x4 four four team at a, at a World University Games one year. And he said to me at one point, when the hell am I running my half marathon? Because all you have me doing is half marathon pace work. But basically what he was saying, all I do is threshold all the time. Why? And I'm running an 800 meter race or a 1500 meter race. And I was like, well, we can get you ready for that faster stuff at the end of the cycle because we've got all of our, all of our basic physiological boxes checked off early on. And we, he would always be shocked at it, but he was always surprised at how fast he could run late and how he could handle rounds and how he could handle all the other loads that were required of him. And so, yeah, early on, this threshold work is so important. And it doesn't matter quite as much late in, pro in, in programs. In fact, late in programs, especially for marathoners, this stuff might even be, it's not really jettisoned or gotten rid of altogether because our quality long runs, Chris, will frequently have um, a, a, a continuum of this pace in it with, without it being the focus. At that point, that workout, that threshold workout would be more race specific that we're trying to accumulate. But I do know that they're going through these exercise physio these physiological boxes that check boxes that are getting done, but that's not the intent of what I'm trying to get done there. I'm just massaging that system while really focusing on the marathon part of it or, or how they're going to feel late in a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and really, I guess as I think about our phasing, obviously we're doing some of these things at, at any point especially because we have such a range of athletes in terms of when they're racing. But if we were to think from a pure periodization standpoint, you know, phase one would probably be focused on base building economy with a little bit of VO2 max work, maybe a little bit of threshold work to start priming the system for the next phase. Phase two would be more of an aerobic strength building phase where you're doing more threshold work, but a little bit of economy, a little bit of VO2. Phase three would be race specific, 
where, yeah, you might incorporate some of these pieces, but you're also doing a lot of race-specific workouts. And then the last phase would be your taper mm-hmm. or sort of peaking phase, getting you ready for the race. So there's a place for really all of these categories all the time, and it just depends on how far you're out where you might have an emphasis when it comes to these various things. Now, let's talk about some tips for this kind of workout, because I think it's fairly common for people to see tempo tempo runs, for example, on a schedule that they might find online or elsewhere. So what are the keys to executing these types of workouts effectively? Start easy, finish strong. That's the most important thing. If you're going too fast, you're probably moved in, already moved into VO2 max work and you're going to blow up. You're not going to be able to finish it. Number two, as we talked about, we always, if we break it up, Chris, we always try to do as little amount of recovery as possible. That way we make sure that the athlete is that they're staying in the zone that they need to stay in and not running too fast. I think the biggest problem that happens with threshold work is people, they, they turn it into a, a work, they turn it into a, a VO2 workout rather than it being what it should be. And I think that's because for a lot of folks, they don't make as ro- I think a lot of times you'll see on generic schedules, things aren't as robust. They're not as robust from a volume recovery and pace perspective as we do at Rogue. And so many people can feel like they can go faster. Um, I remember when I would first do tempo miles, one of the athletes I coach at the University of Texas, we would start with four and we would, by the end of a cross country season, we would get to six. And that wasn't specific. Those girls raced four miles, but I was making sure that I modulated either the pace or the recovery for them to get them where they needed to be, to make sure that they were hitting this threshold work consistently. And it was a lot easier for me to control than if they went out and ran four miles at a tempo pace because their race was four miles and they frequently raced it too much and ran too fast. But they would begin to realize, oh, this is the workout when I finish, I feel good after. So that's another thing that you should be looking at. Even if you are exhausted at the end of that repeti- the, the final rep of this, by the time you cool down and by the time you get out the front, out the door on your way to work or wherever you're going, you should start to feel better. And by the end of that day, you should pretty, feel pretty good. These are not to fail your kind of workouts. And they, they're typically done in distances of six, you know, basically six, four miles, six miles, eight miles, 10 miles. And for marathoners, those are all manageable and they're not done at paces that are too fast. So that's another hallmark of this is it should be something you can recover from pretty quickly. In fact, I frequently will, anytime I put two quality workouts in a week, a threshold will be at the beginning of the week and a, and a VO2 will be at the back end of the week to try to balance those two things. Um, if I haven't done what we're about to talk about next, right? So, yeah. And, the one thing I would add is that this, these types of workouts are all about efficiency and be able to relax at the pace. So for the most part, if you get a workout like this, you should be able to at any point in the workout run faster than prescribed, but that's not the point. The point isn't to hurt as much as you can hurt. The point is to make whatever pace you're prescribed feel as easy as possible. And so if you're prescribed to do half marathon with a true tempo workout, for example, you might be able to finish that run faster, but that's not the point. The point is to stay on the pace and, and try to get that half marathon pace to feel as easy as possible to relax within it. That's where the real magic is because running half marathons, running marathons is all about efficiency, burning as little energy as possible for lo- as long as possible. And that's part of what we're working in these types of workouts. And this is where we are very much listening to our athletes breathing. Oh yeah. This is the day that 
I have yelled at my athletes and said, you're going way too hard. And they're like, you have no idea what my pace is. No, you're breathing like it's a <laughs> VO2 workout, not like it's a threshold workout. I should only hear this heavier breathing in the final mile or mile and a half at most if I hear it at all. So that's another key indicator, Chris, is what you're breathing doing. If you can keep it in control and keep it in rhythm and, and you're not losing your breath, you're probably in a very good spot with that. Okay, so that's threshold. Now let's go to our next category, which is race-specific work. And regardless of what distance you're doing, there's always a time and a place to really work on race-specific pacing. If anything, just to dial into that pace and really understand what pace that should feel like, how to get to it quickly, how to get to it efficiently. Now, one question I always get, especially from marathoners, Steve, is I haven't done that much MGP work in your program. How am I going to be able to hold this pace? And when I say MGP, that's marathon goal pace in our vernacular. How am I going to be able to hold this pace for 26.2 miles if I haven't done that much of it? Of course, we do it, but probably not as much as some programs prescribed. So. Answer that question first, and then we'll talk about some race-specific workouts and how we work that into our training. Point out for me the one runner that ran their marathon goal pace from the first mile to the 26th mile. (laughs) It doesn't happen. There's variability. There's uphills. There's downhill. There's wind. There's exhaustion. There's going out too fast. There's going out too slow. There's so many different variables that get into play with a marathon that a marathon is a war of attrition, and it's a lot more. In some cases, you'll go out. We don't always recommend this, Chris, but sometimes we recommend that people go out faster than the race pace. Sometimes we ask people to go out way slower than the race pace. So really, your marathon pace doesn't check off any, any specific physiological box, so we don't have any reason to do it consistently. Number two, one of the reasons I don't like to do MGP too much is because people say that exact damn thing. When they do it, they're like, there's no way I can cover this for 26.2 <laughs> miles. I don't need to reinforce in their heads that that will be a big ask on race day, right? What is better to do is to get them as physiologically as prepared as possible and then have them run their marathon goal pace. And we do it some to make sure they get the rhythm. But I think a lot of programs focus a whole lot on the rhythm of the race when that is so variable and so many other things can go on in it that I just don't see the value of doing too much in marathon goal pace work. We do a lot of things that start a little slower than it, run through marathon pace, and run faster than it. Um, but we don't really focus a whole lot on strict marathon goal pace. And we certainly, if we do marathon goal pace, we put the large majority, if not all of what we do. In fact, I think you and I do this very similar, Chris. We almost never have marathon pace workouts during the week in our quality workout. We always put them in our long runs in somewhere, put with some way, shape, or form because the race specificity there about a marathon is anybody can run their marathon goal pace for a good long while. It's just, can they run it for more than two hours and more than three hours, depending on what their race time goal time is. So more than four hours, like that's, that's the ask is not that they can't run that pace. It's that we want to prepare them as much as possible to be the best physical specimen they can while there is some specificity to know the rhythm, there's more about the mental toughness and the ability to nu- get the nutrition right and to handle themselves in an emotional and a, in a physical and a mental state to be able to take advantage of the hard gains that they've worked on. And the pace itself is sort of a lesser important variable in the, in the, in the puzzle there. Well, yeah, plus you're not really checking any physiological boxes by running well, marathon that's the key. goal pace. Yeah. 
You're checking, I'll, but you are checking physiological boxes when you're doing all these other workouts that we talked about. So this race specific work generally is there to build confidence and to get you comfortable with dialing into that rhythm, but you're not necessarily building fitness to get to it. Sometimes I equate this to lifting weights in a gym. If you're going to try to improve your max bench press, you don't go out and max bench press every day. You do a lot of different other things. High volume, low reps, different types of lifts, whether you're doing incline bench press or laying on your back bench press, you're doing different things in order to someday come back and improve that max bench press. And the the same is true in running. You've got to work a lot of different systems, a lot of different tools, do some high volume, low intensity stuff, do work different parts of the system in order to get ready to run your big day. But it all fits together in a way to get you ready for that. So you can be confident in the program, even if you haven't run 26 miles before at that pace, because if you had, then we wouldn't be training for it. So Chris, here's an example of a workout that is, there's, there's two different workouts, right? They f- are in the same physiological component. These are both threshold workouts, Chris, that I've described, but one is threshold for the athlete to gain the, phys- the, the physiological benefits from it, and the other one is to get somebody ready to run a half marathon, right? That workout, I'll, I'll give you two different examples. One might be, um, so the, the threshold workout will be, we'll use a, a progressive pace run where they start off at their, uh, they do 10 miles progressive, and they start out at 30 seconds slower than their marathon goal pace, or at or maybe at their marathon goal pace, and they slowly but surely get faster along the line. Now, what I'm doing there is making sure that they're hitting as many different spots on that threshold spectrum to make sure that they're physiologically checking a lot of different boxes off. Even though science isn't proven that those are necessarily beneficial, my experience is athletes that have run through those paces get huge benefits out of them. That's a, that looks like a half marathon specific workout, Chris, right? But it's not because I'm trying to check off boxes. If I was going to run a half marathon specific workout, we would do three times a mile, two times a mile, two times a mile, three times a mile, right? Or no, sorry, three mile, two mile, two mile, three mile. So two, three miles at marathon, at half marathon goal pace, get a recovery, two miles at half marathon goal pace get a recovery, two more miles at half marathon goal pace, and then finish off with three miles at half marathon goal pace. In that workout, my athletes are not going to come away from it feeling good. That won't be a threshold workout. That will be a very hard half marathon specific workout because I was not concerned with checking off the physiological boxes. I was trying to prepare the athlete to be ready for their starting line for the middle of the race and to close the race strong. And I needed to get them in a tough spot. So that pace is, they'll probably sit at half marathon pace. But at the end, what will I tell them, Chris? If you can go faster than half marathon pace in that final three mile, see if you can. Every one of them looks at me and says, there's no way I'm going to be able to do it, coach. I'm not going to be able to do it. But invariably, they do it. people do it. And so those are, you know, they're really, the one is designed for physiological reasons. And the other one which hits some of the same paces is designed to make sure that athlete is ready for that race. The same thing with 10K. You know, Chris, when we do a 10K specific workout, sometimes I'm looking at it as being a VO2 workout and other times I'm looking at it being a specific race value. For example, with our 5K workout, the Aussie 5K, right? That's an in and out 200. They run 200 meters at their 5K specifically and then their recovery is designed to be whatever they can run 
as fast as they can run while being ready to finish the next 200 and do a full three miles of that. Well, that's a race-specific workout much more than it is an economy workout because I'm preparing them to feel what it will feel like late in a 5K race and to make them mentally tough enough to be able to do the work necessary and to make decisions in a race scenario when they're exhausted and they don't believe that they can go any faster or any further. And you're asking them to overcome those limits. And, you know, this, Chris, this, a lot of this race-specific stuff is about overcoming perceptual limits or the limits you have in your head. And sometimes we give really hard workouts and really workouts that people walk away from and say, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that because we need them to break that barrier down and to be ready for that race to know that they can execute it. Well, and we like to work in other paces sometimes to the mix on these race-specific workouts. I had my spring marathoners that still have races to go. This week they did a workout here at Zilker Park where they were doing 8K continuous, so four times the 2K loop there, 8K continuous, alternating between 400 meters at 5K and one mile at marathon pace. It's a little Zucker crushy. A little Zucker crushy. Little Zucker crushy. So, yeah, yeah. so kind of in and out, 5K for yeah. 400, the rest of the loop at marathon pace, which does two things. One, in their mind, it shows them that they can recover at marathon pace. It shows them in some ways how easy marathon pace can be. Yeah, MGP is your recovery. Because you're putting it up <laughs> against a 5K segment. The second thing it does is it also forces them every time they switch gears to find that pace again. Yes. So you've got four opportunities to, to go from 5K to marathon and dial into that and have to figure that out, which helps educate them on how to do that when they're starting a race. So that's one reason why I like to mix that kind of marathon specific work in with a little bit faster work so that it forces that gear shifting, which helps them dial in because otherwise what's the point? I know they can run five miles in marathon goal pace because they're going to run 26 miles at marathon goal pace in in four weeks, some of them. So in order to get something more out of that short of a workout running marathon pace, I need to bring in another element. And so that's what we do with that sort of 500 segment and our 500, uh, 5k segment. So that's just another example. Another thing we've alluded to here is that we do a lot of pace work within our long runs that might be considered race specific work. Sometimes we do pace work in the long runs. That's not race specific. That might be hitting a threshold bucket, but we also like our, our pace workout long runs where you're working in marathon goal pace to the workouts, but, but it rarely does it happen that we just put it in that way. I mean, sometimes we'll do, you know, three times three miles in marathon pace or three times four miles at marathon pace. or you'll give us three times 45 minutes or three times 30 minutes at marathon pace where you're just running specific chunks at that pace. We do that occasionally. And oh. really, Chris, when I do that, I don't really give a shit about the pace. I really want my athlete to, to, to know, oh my goodness, it's hard to do anything for 30 minutes at a time. Focus like that. Yeah. And so when you force them to do that, you start to get them in the mental place to do that. But then we do other things. And as we get to that final long run, capstone long run before a big race, oftentimes we've got big workouts for that. You know, we did one with our podcast group this past cycle that we called the McClung Special, which 
is just to give an example is five miles easy or warm up. Then you do five miles in progression, starting at marathon goal pace plus 30 seconds, working down to marathon goal pace over the first, over those five miles. I like to think of that as a sort of start simulation part of that. Then you get one mile easy. Then you do three miles of one, one fart, like one fast at 5k effort, one easy alternating for three miles. And you get another one mile easy and then a five mile finish simulation where you're starting at marathon goal pace and hopefully working down to half marathon goal pace over the end to simulate finishing strong at the end of the marathon. And so that's 20 miles of work with maybe only a few miles of it actually at marathon goal pace because you're either progressing to it or coming down from it at the end, but it's very much a race-specific workout. Well, it's getting them, and they will feel in that 20th mile like it's the 26th mile of a marathon. And that's the beauty of the fart, like in the middle. Exactly. That's the magic. That's what, and we do a lot of that, Chris. You and I have made that a steady. We love 20-mile runs, but we don't love lots of 22-mile runs and 24-mile runs because we just feel like in our weather conditions that we have frequently, it's too difficult to ask the body to go to that tough spot so frequently and so often. And so we try to quote unquote cheat or shortcut or hack, but that's not really what it is. We're just trying to do more with less miles to be sure that our athletes simulate what they're going to feel late in a race. Because Chris, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many physiological boxes you check off. It's, are you ready to really push through that final section of any race distance that you're racing? And much of that is will and determination and the mental game. And you have to have done work like this in training to test your limits and to test the edges of what you're capable of. You need to be, you need to get spanked in order to be able to handle what's going to happen on race day and not feel like you're, you're destroyed. Yeah. And as it relates to the race specific work, we don't typically have our new marathoners do that kind of work. You know, for them, it's all about covering the distance, getting your, 20 milers in so that you're prepared to run the full 26. But when it comes to that experienced marathoner who's done a couple or who's really looking to get faster, it's a staple. Absolutely. And, and it's, and the reason why it's not so important for our beginner marathoner or first time marathoners is we don't want our first time marathoners frequently thinking about paces too much, but they will probably invariably when they're around other people having these discussions, especially in a program like ours where Everybody, they run with people at, at, a beginner could be a seven minute miler, Chris, their MGP could be seven minute miles and a beginner MGP could be 13 minute miles, but we don't want them to be focused on the time so much. So we just ask them to get the volume in, to be ready to handle the distance itself, because we think the marathon is about, the first marathon is all about completion. And then, then we can get greedy. Absolutely. All right. What else do we want to talk about with race specific work before we go to the mixed category? Are we missing anything? No, I don't think so. I think we've got, um, you know, we're not talking 800 meter, right? Because that would be another whole ball <laughs> of wax, but yeah. we're talking mostly 5K and above. And so, um, you know, there's lots of different ways to cut up this work to make it race specific. But in essence, what you want to do on a race specific workout is run cumulative volume to what you'll run on a race. Day. This is outside of the marathon. Run cumulative volume that you would run for that race with your, with your, uh, with your recovery and your fast section, but you want to be running a little bit faster than your fast, than what you would be running at pace to make that work. So, um, we did a workout today, Chris, with my folks who are in the 5k, 10k mode where we did 800, they did two sets of 800 meters at their 5k pace, 
and then a 600 meter at their 3k pace and a 400 meter at their 3k pace and then a 200 meter at their one mile pace and so i consider that a, a specific 3k workout because it starts a little slower and it finishes faster they hit all those paces and that's great but i use it for my 5k runners because they're going to run a race basically in 10 days. And I know that when they get on that starting line and they go out that first bit, they're going to be ready for it. They're going to go out conservatively, a little bit more conservatively, and they're going to be able to push in the middle of it because they ran faster than their race pace. And I minimize how much recovery they get. I keep it flowing. And I do two sets of it so they get, they, they get more than volume, but they're primed for what's going to happen on race day. So that's the kind of the, the way you want to look at that is just how you position your recovery and your volume. It should mimic about the distance that you're talking about racing so that you don't overdo it. Because one thing that can happen with race-specific workouts very easily, Chris, we've seen this a lot, is people will do too much too fast, and then their race day will be in their workout. And yeah. that's something you don't really want to do. You want to be on the, on the lesser volume side with your race-specific work because we don't want to cook it. We want to, we want to be ready on race day, not ready in the workout. Yeah, I've had people tell me, I ran 20 miles at marathon goal pace. I should be ready <laughs> for my race. Yeah, game over. And my general thought is game over in my head. I don't usually tell them that because yeah. I don't want to demoralize them before well, the race. Well, it's either game but... over or they had a lot of room. Like, you know, Amanda who, Rycraft, who's in my group, she ran a 30-miler where she went through the 10 through the through the 26-30-miler where she went through the 26.2-mile mark on a PR, faster than her PR for the marathon. And she's like, oh, my God. I'm like, well, that... Uh, normally that would make me really really nervous but you're you're you've gained so much this cycle that that's not normal she was ready for it but generally if that's happening it's a real problem it's a problem because you just ran your race essentially on a day that wasn't your race and did it working entirely the wrong systems while also probably increasing your chance of injury so don't do that. <laughs> don't go run 20 miles at marathon goal pace. All right. So that's fourth category. Last category we'll talk about, we'll talk about briefly, is sort of a mixed category. Is that there's certainly a time and a place for different of these systems to come, to, or opportunities to work different systems to come into one workout so that you might be working a few different of the other categories at the same time. And there's a time and a place for that just to kind of start things off, Steve, to give people context for what that might look like. We did a workout this week with your group, Team Rogue, called the Michigan, named after Michigan University. Coach Ron Warhurst. Coach Ron Ron Warhurst Mm -hmm. is the staple of his workouts there at the University of Michigan. Explain what that workout looks like for people. So it's um it's usually designed to be a long session. We'll either do two two sets or three sets of this. Um and typically I like to put a long warm up in it too cuz I like to get my people in a tired spot, but that's not as important. Uh, the most important part is that they're going to run 1200 meters at their 10k pace. So that portion is a VO2 cycle, Chris. And they've got they need to run their recovery is to get out onto the road off of the track. We do that on a track. And then they run a hilly loop course of a mile um, where they're told to run a steady pace, which is comfortably hard. So they're not really focused on pace. And some people ran that at half marathon pace. Some people ran it slower than their marathon pace. It didn't really matter depending on where they were at. But then they got right back onto the track, that little short recovery back onto the track, and they did another 1,200 at the 10K back out onto the road. 
mile at, th- at steady pace. Then those, that's two sets, and some people did a third set of that. Um, and so what we're doing there, Chris, really, I usually do this workout at the beginning of training cycles. I don't really do it super. I usually do it at the beginning or the first half of a training cycle because I know this isn't really so much as this checking some physiological boxes off, but more importantly, it's sort of setting the tone for the level of work that I want my athletes to know they're getting ready to embark on. And the Michigan is a great workout to say, here we go, giddy up, it's time to work. And because they've got that flex in the steady, Chris, there's, there's adjustment that they get to make where they don't have to feel like it's, like it's really, really tough. We actually implemented this workout also with our podcast training group this week. We had some people give us feedback on it. And many people, in my opinion, were running way too fast on their steady. Um, and then the workout was way harder for them than it necessarily had to be. Um, but ultimately, the great thing about this workout is you can't really screw it up because you're really getting good, good volume in and you're getting two different energy systems worked at the same time. So whether they do two sets or two faster or three sets slower or it works them harder in ways that they didn't expect, we get lots of different work done. And a lot of it is in those generic physiological box checked off spots. And we're also testing their toughness and making sure they realize here we go. We're about to start back up. It's time to get back to work. Yeah, this one, because I did it this week, is definitely a mental... Yeah, there's another it's, whole category it's, 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 of, it's a of, mental of quality workouts that are mindfuck workouts. Workout, right? too, <laughs> in that you, know, you're, you basically got to keep your head in the game. You know, you're going to get punched in the face at some point in this workout. Probably not early because faces aren't so fast that that initial 10K pace is scary. But you know, when you hit that second steady mile, especially in this case where you had us on a hilly, hilly course, very with the hilly second course. hill being yeah. pretty diabolical, <laughs> it was like, okay, I just got punched in the mouth. Now I've got to recover from that and then get back on the track and try to hit 10K pace again. That is if I was, if you're doing the third rep, I stayed in it this time, even though the second one was kind of a shit show. <laughs> And but you rallied the last one, I rallied, one, didn't you? I rallied, yep. and I did That's the, the third set faster yes. because, you know, it was like, in my head, I'm like, okay, game on. <laughs> CIM is now in the crosshairs. Which is, see, no messing around. as a coach, I just got what I needed. I got some physiological things done, but I know now you're like, okay, this is the signature start of, we haven't done this workout in a while, right? right. I haven't done it in a long, long time, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking with our podcast group, I'm looking at more ways to do different things rather than doing the same thing. And uh, I knew it would be a great way to get that, all of that started up and get people back in the game. And it worked for Team Rogue. It works for, the, it works for everybody. But yeah, that's a great example of a mixed session. What are some others? Um, so another mixed workout, I mean, the one you described, Chris, which was race-specific, right? It fit in the race-specific category. But it was designed, it was a mixed workout because you threw MGP work in, slower than MGP work in, some faster than MGP work, and then finished with MGP work. So it's kind of a whole category of in and out correct, workouts. Correct. Lots of different things. And, and those mixed workouts are really doing one of two things, either maximizing the amount of time that we're going to try to get physiological boxes checked off, which the Michigan fit, or like we'll do with our Canova Ks, where I'm, I do am also checking boxes off there, Chris. You know, we really work that that session a lot. It's 5k pace for basically a thousand and then, um, half marathon pace for a thousand and going in and out and in and out. And I, that workout is much more about mental toughness, even though I know I'm getting physiological benefits from it. I'm really challenging my athletes to stay in it for as long as possible. Stay with the game, 
see how much further. Use your recovery at fast paces to be the easy part and then punch it again. It just really simulates the kind of fight that we're looking for in our athletes and simulates what might be happening on a race day. And so they really fall into those two boxes. Either we're maximizing the work we're trying to get done from this quality work being really physiologically advantageous. And then another whole section of it, which is how are we going to prepare you for your race? And all of this quality, Chris, to sum this up kind of in a tidy little bow is what does your race require? And it's not just physiological things. It's physiological things and psychological and mental things. And they all have to be brought to bear in order to be properly prepared for the race that you're going to run. So one thing, especially as we cover this category, this kind of mixed category that we haven't specifically talked about, but there is some thinking out there that hill workouts are somehow a category all to their own. And the way we think about the world is basically they fit into those other categories. It just depends on how you structure the workout. So you can have a hill workout that's working economy, as we talked about, hill strides. You can have a hill workout that's working VO2 max, where you might be doing, and we have a workout called the marshes, where you're doing basically 5K hard, 5K pace hard. For 200 meters. For 200 meters with about a 100 meter recovery, then another 200 meters hard at 5K pace which is working probably a little economy and depending on how fast you're going on the recoveries, maybe a little VO2 work. And we have threshold runs where you'll throw us on a hilly course and tell us to do tempo or steady work. We'll take scenic. So we do a, a iconic hill in Austin, Texas. I have two workouts, two, two bread and butter workouts I do out there. One is a VO2 max workout and we run from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill, which is about 500 meters long, but it equals, it's about 600 meters long, and people usually get to the top of it at a very good world, a national world-class 800 meter time. But so they're going 600 meters and they have a time goal to get to the top of, and then they jog all the way back down, huge recovery on their way back down, and they'll do six or eight, or in some real tough cases, we'll do 10, not very often. But at the same time, I'll have another group of athletes, my marathoners, half marathoners, doing what we call a scenic hill loop, which they'll run to the top of that same hill, Chris, and then and then ease off at the top and then run kind of at threshold pace down the hill and then come back in and they do two of those, they do two miles continuous and it's a different session, but it's done on hills and we're getting completely different physiological things done, but yet it's on the same location and we're doing hills. Yeah. So it can fit a lots, of di- lots of different ways to cut these things up. Yeah. And really you're, Especially if you have a hilly race, your, your best program is going to involve hills throughout the cycle, really, because you've got to be prepared for the work that you're going to do, but also hills make you stronger physically and mentally. So there's really a place for it throughout an entire cycle, regardless of what you're training for, especially if it's on the roads, your, your, your training, your race. And then depending on what system you're working, what kind of depends on what category you're hitting with each of those types of hill workouts. So for us, it's not a standalone. It's, yes, <laughs> you know, hills have, a, have a, a year-round place in our world, depending on what we're trying to accomplish with the workout. Somebody somewhere said, hills are speed work in disguise. Frank Shorter. And I don't know where the disguise is. Because <laughs> they're goddamn right speed work. So it's just right there. I just love it that he said that. It's like, but, it, but to me, it's like, they're hill, speed work in disguise, except for the people that actually do them. And then they know that was speed work. <laughs> okay, so we're going to wrap this series 
here. Two episodes on quality workouts. I do have to give a shameless plug for our podcast program. Still, We're still taking new members for that until the end of the month through May 31st if you'd like to jump in. Again, we've got tracks for people doing races from you know, 5K, 10K at the end of the summer to fall half marathons and marathons from September all the way to December. So we've got plenty of options in this current program. We've got over 60 people in the program already. Just you know, you know, double what we had last time. So it's a good group, really cool interactions, and you'll be able to get all of this kind of work laid out for you in terms of how it fits together for your goal race. So and Chris, a lot of levels. Yeah, a lot of levels. We have first-time marathoners who are trying to do their first marathon to people that are trying to run certain times and really all paces represented. So anybody can join us there. No matter, no matter what, and we'll help you kind of go from your starting point to wherever you want to go. But huge, huge group and really fun Facebook group with that, with a lot of both accountability and camaraderie in that virtual <laughs> community, which has been really awesome for us to see develop. We call that group the Renegades, or they call themselves the Renegades. That's a self-determined moniker, and, and they truly live it out as a team and in their work virtually as they're doing their business individually throughout really the world. Now we've got seven countries represented as well. In that Renegades group, worldwide. Which is awesome. So check that out if you want to. You can go to roguerunning.com forward slash podcast training. And that's it for episode 74. As always, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Rogue Running. Of course, on the website, as I just mentioned, at roguerunning.com. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.